Let me invite you this morning to make your way in your Bible to the book of 1 Timothy. 1 Timothy. We are beginning a new book exposition this morning, coming into the book of 1 Timothy. And uh, we're going to come through this book verse by verse and uh, stanza by stanza. And so we're going to glean from this letter the wonderful truths that God has given uh, to us in it. Uh, this is what you would call expositional preaching, and that is the uh, preaching through a Bible book uh, sequentially. And so through that we get context, we get understanding, we get the uh, immediate scope of the truth that's being communicated there. And uh, so I, I love digging into a new book of the Bible. Sometimes we have a break where we have some subject-oriented ser sermons. Um, but uh, looking forward to digging into this wonderful book for us today. title of the message is Dear Timothy, because it is the first and opening message. Dear Timothy, it is a letter to him. And so let's read our text, just verse 1 and 2, the opening greeting. And I'll give us some background here too, and I pray that this will set the, set the stage for the rest of the study through this book. The Bible says, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the command of God, our Savior, and of Christ Jesus, our hope, to Timothy, my true child in the faith, grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus, our Lord. What we have before us is a letter written from one person to another. Did you know that the majority of your New Testament is indeed letters that were written to churches or to particular people or a group of Christians? See, a letter is a written message directed specifically to another individual or group. And, you know, mankind today probably writes fewer letters, especially handwritten letters, than maybe in years past. You say, why is that? Well, why would you write a letter when you can text, right? <laughs> Why would you write a letter when you can email? I mean, I, I personally, I don't like handwriting, and my personal handwriting, I don't know that other people can read it real well. So I'm, I'm pretty big on typing on the keyboard and, and letting, letting that do the work for me. But when you consider the, the physical nature, the, physical, the, the, the nature of handwritten physical letters that were once pinned down, they, they tend to carry maybe a little more weight. Handwriting things does emphasize uh, meaning and maybe some importance from the person who's giving it. It usually communicates an important message. Some years ago, I thought this was quite interesting, I came across a handwritten letter penned by my grandfather as uh, we were going through some of dad's items after he had passed away. And, and this particular letter was a letter from him to the parents of my grandmother. And uh, this letter was written while he was in Bible college in Little Rock, Arkansas, and this letter was a request for something. Anybody got a guess what that request might be? He was expressing in that letter just how wonderful my grandmother was and his intentions to marry her. And so this was a letter to them. And then they sent a letter back to him. And uh, it just kind of reminded me of how important letters were years ago. Years ago. Now, maybe you ought to write a letter to your wife or your husband. It might mean something even today, more than a text, right? But reading that letter, I could feel the weight of the words he penned, how important they were in that letter for him and his future with what would, what would come to be my grandmother. You know, the letters of the New Testament, they're of even greater importance than letters like those. 
say, well, why is that? Because the letters of the New Testament, they are not just a man pinning one thing to another. The letters of the New Testament are the word of the living God, given through divine inspiration of the Holy Spirit. These letters were penned with glorious purpose and of great spiritual necessity for the people of God. Now, back then, there was no texting, no email, and probably for good reason. God had his word pinned down so that it would be preserved. And by God's grace, it has been preserved for us to read and know today how important these letters are for us. So what do we know about this letter known as 1 Timothy? Well, in short, we know it's written by Paul. But to give you a little backdrop here, the setting of this letter, after being released from his first Roman imprisonment, sharing with you some notes that I gathered, Paul had revisited several of the cities in which he had ministered, including Ephesus. Leaving Timothy behind there to deal with problems that had arisen in the Ephesian church, such as false doctrine, disorder in worship, the need for qualified leaders, materialism that was prevalent in that culture. Paul went on to Macedonia, and from there he wrote the letter First Timothy to, care, to Timothy to help him in carrying out his task in the church. So he wrote this letter somewhere around A.D. 62 to 64, giving some much-needed instruction for him, but not just for him, also for the church as a whole. And that is what I want us to see through this book, is that 1 Timothy and what is known as the pastoral epistles, they're not just meant or limited to a pastor or that pastor in that particular time. They are indeed instruction for the whole of the church of God. So notice with me a few points this morning as we open up this letter. Number one is the person writing this letter. We must introduce the person, and you all already know who the person is. But notice as we come into the text how he introduces himself. Notice Paul's introduction of himself in this letter. Paul, in typical fashion, always, majority of the time, I would say, identified himself as the author. Unless you claim one other, one other letter may be written by him. We're not sure about yeah, that for sure. But verse 1, Paul says, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus. But we think of who is this man we know as Paul. Most of us, and even the world at large, have heard of Paul the apostle. He's a pretty well-known guy. God used him to pin down the majority of the New Testament. He was a unique man, chosen by God to be the messenger of Christ to the Gentiles. We know that Paul was not always his name known in Scripture. He formerly was known as Saul of Tarsus. But after his conversion and coming to Christ, he went by the name Paul. And the word Paul means little. The word Paul means little. Some think Paul was maybe small, physical in appearance, his physical appearance because of his name, and even some scripture indicates that his physical appearance was less than, be, less than to be desired. 2 Corinthians 10.10 kind of insights, gives us some insight on this. He says, for they say his letters are weighty and strong, but his bodily presence is weak and his speech of no account. Paul probably wasn't a real big guy, but that didn't really matter, did it? See, regardless of his physical nature, whether he was small and unimpressive to the sight, he was a spiritual giant, someone greatly used of God. 
You see, to be used of God depends not on anything that is physical, but has everything to do with that which is spiritual. And I want you to remember that as a Christian. For all of our spiritual life is a grace, is of grace to begin with. And if we are to be used of God mightily, we need to first recognize that we are indeed little. (laughs) We are weak. Beggarly, helpless people without the grace of our God. And God is mighty and does mighty things through little people. You just give a good look at Paul and he's an example. We look at Paul and see that he was a traditional, zealous Jew. A Pharisee of Pharisees, he calls himself. His life before conversion was a fierce persecutor of Christ and the church. As we see him recall that later in this chapter. But the grace of God reached down and snatched Paul's heart. Awakened him to his blind and dead state. Converting him to faith in Christ. Making him one of the most influential Christians in church history. And thus we see in this text, how does Paul identify himself? He says that he is an apostle of Christ Jesus. He's an apostle of Christ Jesus. What is an apostle? Well, the word apostle speaks of messengers with extraordinary status, or it can also speak of messengers with ordinary status. By the basic definition, one could be an apostle or messenger of anyone, one who represents another. But Paul identifies his apostleship as not being just anyone he represents, but he represents the highest one, Christ Jesus The one who is exalted above all, who has a name above every name, that every person will one day confess as Lord. He's an apostle of this man, this God, of Christ Jesus, the King of kings and Lord of lords. While there are many who were messengers of Christ in early church and throughout church history, in the early church era, there were certain men put into what is known as the office of the apostle, and it was limited to those specific men. What am I trying to say? The apostle in which Paul would identify as is no longer around today, though many claim to be. These particular apostles in the early church era were gifted with supernatural spiritual gifts and divine authority like no other office had been given. So there are no apostles in that nature today. It was a special office, only for those chosen by God to be put into that office. You notice what Paul says of this office here. He says that he's an apostle of Christ Jesus by command of God. By command of God. You understand the office that Paul is listing here, this was not Paul's choice for himself. This was God's choice for him. God chose him to be apostle, called him to be apostle, put him in the place of apostle, and therefore he is this apostle. Because God alone, church, understand this, God alone has the right to use people as he pleases in the local church. It is his decision because it's his body. See, Paul said to the Ephesians, emphasizing this, that God's the one who gives these offices for the church's Good and edification. Ephesians 4, 11 through 12, he gave the apostles. It's a gift. The prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds and teachers. 
for the purpose of this, to equip the saints for the work of the ministry, for the building up of the body of Christ. So you see the connection here that as, as Paul is writing to Timothy, who is the pastor in Ephesus, the Ephesians would know to regard Paul with high esteem because Paul has already written to them about who gives these offices. You see, his apostleship here identifies his authority from God to the early church for what he does and what he says. And this brings to us the importance and authority of the letter. That this letter carries the mark of divine authority, not from Paul himself, but from God who inspired Paul. Many reject the Bible because of this notion, oh, it was pinned down by men. Well, what do you expect? God uses men and has means in his efforts, in his work. He could have had a monkey pin it down. But praise God, he chose to use us who are made in his image. God chooses to use us. He uses Paul in this fashion. May we praise God today that he gave us this book through Paul and preserved it for us. But notice with me letter B this morning. We see Paul's introduction of himself. But notice also Paul's description of God. His description of God. It's a simple fundamental description, but yet one that carries such weight and depth to it. In verse 1, he says that his apostleship is by the command of who? God, our Savior. God, our Savior. Now, I want you to pause for a moment and just think about that beautiful truth. Because as many times as I've read this and as many times as we see and hear that God is our Savior, Christ is our Savior, studying this this time hit me square in the face afresh. Brought me to tears. That God is our Savior. What does it mean that He's our Savior? What does a Savior do? A Savior delivers another from peril. From danger, from destruction. You understand what God has done for his people. God has saved his people from eternal destruction for their wickedness that they rightly deserve by the means, by the work of the redemptive blood atonement of Jesus Christ. His death, burial, and resurrection, through what Christ has done, God has saved His people. He has brought salvation to His people. Now, Paul knew this, and he did not think it a light thing to say such a thing. He reflects on this in verse 15. Look at verse 15 of this chapter with me. So beautiful. So marvelous. Paul says, as recalling his past and the mercy of God, he says in verse 15, the saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came in the world to do what? To save sinners. Who here is a sinner today? Every single one of us. There's only one Savior of sinners, and his name is Jesus. But I want you to notice what Paul says of himself at the last sentence here. He says, he came to save sinners. Christ Jesus came to the world to save sinners, 
of whom I am the foremost or the chiefest or to put it in littler terms, the biggest of sinners. The worst of sinners. Paul considers himself this way. He sees who he actually was. And he says Christ came to save sinners of whom I am the foremost or the chiefest of them. Christian, you'll not glory and, and, and bow in wonder at this little statement that God is our Savior if you don't see how great a sinner you are. You must see how great a sinner you are to see how great a Savior he is. Not only does he say that God is our Savior, he's also our hope. Notice this, Christ Jesus, our hope. What does he mean here by calling Jesus our hope? The hard hope here is not like that question mark that our culture uses today. Well, I hope this or I hope that. Hope in the Bible is a confident, absolute expectation, an assurance of that. It is to look forward to something with some reason for confidence respecting fulfillment. And guess what that reason for confidence is? It is Christ Jesus. He is our confident expectation in our future and for our future. You see, this is what God's people looked forward to before Christ, and it is what we possess in Christ. Paul wrote to the Colossians, and he said to them in Colossians 1.27, To them God chose to make known how great among the Gentiles are the riches of the glory of this ministry, which is Christ in you. The what of glory? The hope of glory. You understand, glory in our future is not some, well, man, I hope I have glory in the future. No, if you know Christ, it's already a done deal. You can take it to the eternal bank. You see, these two identifiers, God our Savior and Christ Jesus our hope, they seem so basic and so fundamental. Why mention them? Why stress them? Because they are the foundation of all that we are and all that we do as a Christian. Timothy needed to remember that the God who put him in this position to serve was his Savior. He is serving because of his Savior, friend. Timothy is saved by God alone. Timothy needed to remember that Jesus Christ is his hope. He has an unshakable security and confident assurance of his eternal future in Christ. Forgetting these two basic elements, these two basic identifiers of God, can be subtly destructive to our Christian faith in our service. You know why? Because it is easy for us in our Christianity to go through the motions of Christian worship and Christian service. Forgetting or growing dull to the very reason that you're a Christian in the first place. You gathered here to worship today, not because it's the Christian thing to do, but because Christ is your Savior. He has saved you from your sins by faith alone in Him. Christian, you understand that you live your life for Christ because He's your Savior and your hope. What other reason would you have to live for, for him? 
What other motive should we possess than that of being saved from our sins and given eternal life in Him? Paul the Apostle writes to the Corinthians in 2 Corinthians 5, 14 and 15. He says to them, For the love of Christ controls us. Because we have concluded this, that one has died for all, therefore all have died, and he died for all, that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. Christian, you want to know your motive for living for Christ, loving Him with all of your heart, worshiping Him? It is not to make sure others see that you're a good Christian, doing all the right things. The only motive you should have is love for Jesus because He is your Savior. He has rescued you from eternal damnation that you're worthy of. Let us not neglect these nuggets of gold here in the greeting that seem so usual in our Christian talk. They were needed for Timothy. They were needed for us. That brings us to number two. In our notes this morning, we see the person who wrote this letter, Paul, and how he opens this greeting. But notice with me the people reading this letter. Well, the first person we know is going to be reading this letter is a man named Timothy, right? If you had a test and that was a question, you better not fail it. It's in the title. Dear Timothy. Dear Timothy. It's written to Timothy, who is a first century Christian pastor. He's a first century Christian pastor. To Timothy, Paul says in verse 2. To give us the context for understanding this letter, we need to know a little bit about him. Who the writer is and who the writer is writing to are key components and questions to ask when wanting to understand context of a particular passage of Scripture. And here we see the immediate context of this letter is to Timothy. Well, who is this man named Timothy? Do we have some additional insight to this man that will help us better understand what's going on here? We do. One of the wonderful things about the Scripture is that there are other references to different doctrines, different people that all harmonize and work together. The Bible is the best commentary of itself. Notice with me a couple things about Timothy here in this point. We notice Timothy's background for a moment. We have a little bit in his background. Now, as we're all aware, names in the Bible have always important significance. Paul means little. It kind of gives credence to his humility, but also his physical stature. Then the name Timothy. The name Timothy means honoring God or honored of God, valued of God. As you look closer at him, you can easily see that his name is true of his life and of his character. Timothy was from Lystra, a city in the Roman province of Galatia, which would be modern-day Turkey today if you want to get your map out and look for it. Scripture gives us his background in the book of Acts. Look with me at Acts 16, verse 1 through 3 for a moment. Acts chapter number 16, verse 1 through 3. We're reading about Paul and Silas and their missionary journey. The Scriptures say that Paul came also to Derbe and to Lystra. A disciple was there named Timothy, the son of a Jewish woman who was a believer, but his father was a Greek. He was well spoken of by the brothers at Lystra and Iconium. 
what you find here is who Timothy is and where he comes from. His mother was a believing Jew, one who believed in the Messiah. His father was a Greek and most likely an unbeliever. Most think that his father had already passed on at this point, but not his mother. His mother is still around. But you notice that his ethnic background here, having both Jew and Greek or Gentile in his mix, that would give him an advantage at reaching both cultures, both the Jews and the Greeks, especially as he's going to be pastoring in a pagan city such as Ephesus. So we see his background, but notice with me, secondly, his salvation, because this is very important. How did Timothy come to know Christ? I love hearing how people come to know Christ, don't you? I love hearing testimony of how someone heard the gospel, how the gospel affected their heart, where they came to believe. Those are powerful things. When we think about Timothy, we have a little background to his testimony of salvation. There are some priceless things here mentioned regarding his coming to salvation. And the first one is this, is that while his father was most likely pagan, his mother and his grandmother knew the true God. They were believers. Being Jews, they had the right expectation of the Messiah, which was Jesus Christ. We read of this in 2 Timothy 1.5. In the second letter, Paul writes to Timothy... He says to Timothy in this letter, I am reminded of your sincere faith, a faith that dwelt first in your grandmother Lois and your mother Eunice. I am sure dwells in you as well. So Timothy here is a third generation Christian. His grandmother had sincere faith. His mother had sincere faith. And Timothy's sincere faith here, understand, it's exemplified firstly in his mother and grandmother. What does this show us today, Christian? What do we glean from this? Does this not show us the importance of parents and grandparents genuinely living out their Christian faith before their children and their grandchildren? Do not think that you can fool your children or your grandchildren into thinking you're a sincere and genuine Christian. If you come to church and do all the right things, but at home you act like a devil. Do not be deceived in such things. Timothy saw in his mom and his grandmother a genuine faith lived out, not just in the church house, which they didn't actually have at that particular time, but in their own house. We cannot expect our children to become Christian just because we demand that they be Christian. You must display what Christianity actually is in your life and home. But secondly, to add to that, we know that nobody comes to Christ simply by watching an example. How does faith come to a person? Romans 10, 17. Faith comes by hearing and hearing by what? The word of God or the word of Christ. This leads us to what really impacted his or really what is the converting power in his conversion. 2 Timothy 3, 14 through 15. Paul references again for us giving us insight into his salvation. 
He says, but as for you, continue in what you have learned and have firmly believed, knowing from whom you have learned it and how from childhood you have been acquainted with the sacred writings, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. You notice that little part of the end, the last half of that? From childhood... He has been acquainted with the sacred writings. Do you have any idea what the sacred writings might be? The scriptures. The word of the living God. From a child, Timothy has been taught the word of the living God. He's been shown the word of the living God. And what does the word of the living God do? He says it's able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. What does this manifest to us today, church? It manifests to us the vital importance of children being raised in the word of God. The word of God must saturate their life and minds beginning in the home. I cannot stress this enough, that every home is accountable for its own children. Every home is. While the local church and all her teaching ministries are necessities and, and great for the children, true gospel ministry begins in your house. It must because that is where they get the majority of influence they need for life. It is in their own home. Charles Spurgeon's quote here and comment is, is very helpful and I think true. He says, to teach our children is a personal duty. We cannot delegate it to Sunday school teachers or other friendly aides. These can assist us but cannot deliver us from the sacred obligation. Any substitutes are evil and insufficient. Mothers and fathers must, like Abraham, command their households in the fear of God and talk with their offspring concerning the wondrous works of the Most High. Parental teaching is a natural duty. Who are more fit to look after their child's well-being as those who are the authors of his actual being? I'm afraid that too many Christian homes have pawned off their spiritual duties to the local church and they've neglected them at home. And that is one reason we have a mass exodus of a younger generation who are not truly grounded in truth. You see, Timothy came to know Christ because of the scriptures taught in his home. May this be the conviction for us who still have children and grandchildren around that we do our best to influence them with the gospel at home. But notice thirdly, regarding Timothy, we see not only Timothy's salvation, but Timothy's gospel service. I enjoy reading about him. Timothy was younger than Paul, probably in his 30s. He had co-labored with Paul in much of his missionary work. And by the time 1 Timothy was written, he had been with Paul already for about 15 years as the apostle's constant companion. But notice what Paul calls Timothy in our text in verse 2. He says, my true child in the faith. My true child in the faith. We know that Timothy was not Paul's biological child, right? So why does he call Timothy his true child in the faith? Well, 
Some think this means Timothy was converted under Paul's ministry of preaching while in Lystra. And that's possible, but it's not limited to that. He may have already been a believer since it says he was a disciple when they came to Lystra. The description most likely, I think, is an indication of how dear he was to Paul. That he viewed him like a son in the faith. In the Christian faith. As a co-laborer. See, Paul had many co-laborers, many that we could name whom he loved, but there's only two in Scripture that he actually calls his children of faith. And that's Timothy and Titus. Only two. What made Timothy so dear and true child in the faith to Paul? Well, a couple things I'll mention here. One thing that stuck him out is that he had true saving faith. He wasn't an empty professor. He was a possessor of faith. And that is important. Because there are many who profess faith but do not possess faith. And in the end, their life will tell the tale of whether or really what's inside. His faith was sincere, as we read earlier. But secondly, we read about Timothy in his life that, that Timothy was obedient and faithful to the Lord. Continuing obedience to Christ. Understand, that is a mark of genuine faith and Christian growth. That you love the Lord and you live for Him. See, one who is not may be drawn away by other things in this world, like Demas. But thirdly, Timothy, understand, he was grounded in true doctrine and conviction also. You see, Timothy knew the truth. And Paul was confident enough in Timothy's orthodoxy so much that he was willing to send Timothy to instruct churches and to pastor them. He trusted Timothy because he knew Timothy had the truth. He had a conviction for the truth. 1 Corinthians 4.17 tells us, give just one example, when he was sent to Corinth. That is why I sent you, Timothy, Paul says, my beloved and faithful child in the Lord, to remind you of my ways in Christ as I teach them everywhere in every church. But there's something else in Timothy that I'll note fourthly is that Timothy, he had a deep passion and compassion for the Lord's churches. He loved the people of God. He loved the church of God. If you look with me to Philippians for a moment, turn with me here. Philippians 2, look with me at verse 19 through verse 24, and you'll see this. Philippians 2. 2, 19 through 24. Paul's writing to this church. And he says, I hope in the Lord Jesus to send Timothy to you soon so that I too may be cheered by news of you. But notice what he says of Timothy in verse 20. For I have no one like him who will be genuinely concerned for your welfare. For they all seek their own interests, not those of Jesus Christ. But you know Timothy's proven worth. How as a son with a father, he has served with me in the gospel. I hope therefore to send him just as soon as I see if he'll go well with me. And I trust in the Lord that shortly I myself will come to you. Do you see the emphasis of what Paul says here? He says, I have no one who will care for you the same way that I'll care for you. This man is Timothy. 
He says there are several others who are preaching Christ and doing things in Christ's name for their own benefit and not for the real benefit of the glory of God and the good of the church. Timothy had his priorities straight. His heart was right. In his motive and in his passion. Oh, how we need men like this in today's world for the local churches of today. Believe it or not, there are many men today who preach Christ for their own benefit and do not genuinely love Christ and his church. But knowing this brief overview of this man, Timothy, is helpful to studying the books of Timothy and are good for us as we go forward. Notice with me letter B. Remember the people who are reading this letter. Timothy's number one. It's addressed to him. But it's not just going to be read by Timothy and heard by Timothy. It is also for the church. Because the church are recipients of the goodness of God. God's goodness You know, Paul closes this verse here in verse 2, grace, mercy, and peace. He uses these three words that describe the spiritual benevolence of God upon his people, not just Timothy. You see, would Timothy read this letter and only keep its contents to himself? Absolutely not. You see, the letters of Paul, though they were addressed to specific people or churches, They were copied and they were circulated among the churches so that the churches were getting the inspired scripture written by Paul and others under God's providence. So why does Paul speak of such simple things in such an opening? Well, the same reason he spoke of such simple words as God our Savior and Christ Jesus our hope. We must not forget The priceless gifts that are mentioned here in grace, mercy, and peace. What is this grace that we must recognize? It's the undeserved and unearned favor of God. How many of us deserve favor with God? Raise your hand. Not a one. At least y'all are telling the truth today. How many of us could earn the favor of God? Anybody? None. Grace is the only reason you're a Christian today. That's it. Grace alone. Grace is what God gives. And connected to grace is His mercy. What is mercy? It is the compassion and pity of God on His people. And this mercy is what restrains His hand from righteous judgment being poured out on you. How many of us are worthy of the righteous judgment of God? Oh, some hands didn't go up. You're either asleep, not paying attention, or you're lying. None of those three are good. (laughs) Not one of us. is. Not one of us is worthy of mercy. Both grace and mercy are the reason that you are saved today. Ephesians 2, 4 and 5. But God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. Oh, and there's this little part at the end. For by grace you are saved. What is peace? Peace is the result of mercy and grace. It is both harmony with God and tranquility of soul. 
Because you understand that before you came to know God, came to know Christ, you were not at peace with God. You were in hostility with God. And even your fellow man, believe it or not. But by the work of the cross, Christ has brought peace between his people and God. He's also given us peace within. Peace that transcends and even reaches to other people. And here's the important point to recognize with this. Where does this grace and mercy and peace come from for Timothy and the church and for you? Friend, it comes from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Lord. Paul tells us right here, grace, mercy, peace, they're from Him. They come from Him. He is the source. He is the giver. All of it is from Him. You see, that which we need for salvation and that which we need for all of the Christian life, it comes from God because we are empty and destitute without those gifts. We have nothing to offer. In our sinful state, we have nothing to offer. We can't conjure up grace. We can't demand mercy. We can't even manufacture saving faith of ourselves. It itself is the gift of God. We are empty without these things. Every good gift and every perfect gift comes down from the Father of lights. So this little greeting would be a needed reminder for Timothy and the church. And they're needed today too. Number three and lastly, and I'll try to come through this in a timely fashion. I hear stomachs rumbling. Probably just my own. Notice with me number three, the purpose behind this letter. Just a brief overview. Very brief. Twofold. This letter gives divine instruction for pastors. It gives divine instruction for pastors. Why is Timothy in Ephesus and not with Paul here? Well, verse 3 tells us. He says, I urged you when I was going to Macedonia, remain at Ephesus so you may charge certain persons not to teach any different doctrine. Right there you have an undergirding theme of what's going on in the book of 1 Timothy. As much as Paul would have loved to have Timothy with him, like usual, there was a pressing matter in Ephesus that needed to be taken care of. And that pressing matter and problem was the infiltration of false doctrine. You understand that doctrine is everything. All of the Christian life is linked to doctrine. You can't live the Christian life without doctrine. There's no separation of that. Paul has Timothy staying there as their pastor to correct false doctrine and to lead the church in truth. What does that tell you about the threat of false teaching and the necessity of true doctrine in the local church? Tells us quite a bit. Tells us quite a bit. The pastor has the responsibility for leading the church in truth. And warning away error. I think it was Calvin who said the pastor ought to have two voices. One for gathering the sheep and one for driving away wolves. And that is indeed true. Why is that? Because where is truth to be found? If anybody in this world is going to find truth, where should truth be found? In the church of the living God, friend. The church is the hub for truth. We don't get the truth we need from other sources. You're not going to get it from the news. 
You're not going to get it from your neighbor. You're not going to get it from so-and-so down the road. The church is where the truth is found, and to be found, and fortified, and lifted up. This is what Paul tells Timothy later in this book. In chapter 3, verse 15, he's telling him these things so that he may know how to behave in the household of God, which is the church of the living God. And notice what he describes it as, a pillar and buttress of the truth. Pillars hold up things and lift up things. Where can truth be found? It ought to be found here in Lee Creek Baptist Church. God help us if it ain't. See, the influence of false teachers was prominent in the early church. As you read the New Testament, much of it is instruction and correction in truth. Is there ironing out some things? Is there early church infancy there? False teaching subtly creeps in and is dangerous to local church. And this wasn't a problem just back then. Church, it's a prevalent problem today. You know why? Because the deceiver ain't gone nowhere. <laughs> He's still working. Jude writes of these false teachers. Certain people have crept in unnoticed who long ago were destined for this condemnation. Ungodly people who pervert the grace of our God into sensuality and deny our only master and Lord, Jesus Christ. And here's the sad reality about false teaching. The outworking of false teaching and error, it seeps into and affects all the other aspects of the church. It brings about division. Causes idols to be built in the church. I'm not talking about physical things, I'm talking about Silly traditions that somebody won't let go of because this is how we've always done it, but it's not biblical. Multitudes of things affect the church. And so Paul addresses very important subjects, and I'll briefly give you them. He addresses the use and misuse of God's law. The responsibility of praying in the church. The role of women in the church. The requirements for pastors and deacons. The structure of the church. How to combat false teachers. The responsibility of the man of God. How wealth should be viewed in the church. He references important doctrines such as salvation. The fall of man. The person and work of Christ. The doctrine of election. The second coming of Christ. You understand, leading God's people is no easy task, but it is a glorious one. And Paul wanted Timothy to be faithful to his calling as a minister of the gospel in the local church. And so this book, it's more than just a guide to Timothy back then. It's a guide to every minister today, every local church pastor. You know what that means? That means that I am accountable to read 1 Timothy and apply its truth to Lee Creek Baptist Church. Which brings me to letter B. The purpose of this letter is not only for the local church pastor. This letter gives divine instructions for the church as a whole. Would this letter be only for Timothy's benefit? Some may be thinking right now, well, that's your 1 Timothy, he's a pastor, that's not me. I don't really have to have that letter. I think I'm going to sit this series out. I'll come back when you're done. Don't be thinking that way. I'll come find you. John Calvin rightly comments in one of his sermons about this text. We must not think this letter was written by Paul for the sake of one man only. It was intended for the whole church as can be seen from its contents. 
You see, every believer needs to know and understand what God has said about how we relate to Him and to one another in the church. You know why? Because every believer should belong to a local church. Amen. Believer, you're not meant to be a lone wolf Christian. You're meant to be part of a local body of Christ. The heart of all of us as Christians is to know God's truth and to live out that truth. As David said, teach me your way, O Lord, that I may walk in your truth. I want to walk in truth. I hope that you want to walk in truth. So you consider the truths in, in this, this passage, in this book. How do Old Testament laws apply to the Christian today? What's your answer? What is God's design for women in the church? Is that a bit of a controversial thing today? Yes. You ought to know what the Bible says about that. Who's qualified to be a pastor or deacon? Can just anybody jump into that office? No. Yet everybody in the sun jumps into that office today. How can you identify false teachers? How should you combat them? If you're a Christian who has great wealth, how should you use that wealth? What does the Bible teach about that? These questions and so many more are addressed in this book for the Christian. The book of 1 Timothy is for all of us today. Because God designed in his superior, perfect providence and sovereignty that everything that he inspired to be written back in the first century, it would circulate among those churches, be preserved for all of his churches throughout history until Jesus comes. As Jonathan Edwards rightly comments on that, there was now a complete and established written revelation of the mind and will of God wherein God has fully recorded a standing and sufficient, all-sufficient rule for his church in all ages. All ages. As we've introduced this book of 1 Timothy, you're going to see the reason why we're going through it verse by verse, line upon line, expositional preaching. We're gleaning some insight needed for our hearts to feed us and grow us. May this book reach our hearts. May it grow our Christian life and may it cultivate a church grounded in the will of God. Let us take these truths to heart today. Let's stand to our feet as we prepare to close in prayer and song. Father, we bow before you this morning and thank you for your word. I'm so thankful that you preserved it, you kept it. Though it was written so many years ago, it is preserved for us. Though all of hell has sought to eradicate it from the earth, it cannot be destroyed. Lord, your truth endures to every generation. It is forever settled in heaven. Help us to heed your truth. Pray that you give each and every one of us a heart to know truth. And to walk in it and to live by it. Life's too short to live in error. Life's too short just to do other things that don't matter. Stamp eternity upon our hearts. Maybe there's one that doesn't know Christ. They're not ready for eternity. I pray that you draw them to Christ. Help them to see their need of Christ. He alone is Savior. Help us, God, who know you, not to ever get over that simple fact. That you saved us from our sin. And you've called us to a life worth living unto Christ. Pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.